Welcome to The Backstory. I'm Jason Bentley, and I am in terrific company today at our virtual table here at Soho House. Terrence Blanchard joins me, acclaimed jazz musician, trumpet player, music educator, and prolific film composer. Terrence's opera, Fire Shut Up in My Bones, based on New York Times writer Charles Blow's memoir, will open next year at the Metropolitan Opera in New York City, the first opera by an African-American composer to be performed at the Met in its 137-year history. Hello, Terrence. Hey, Jason. How are you? Doing well. Thank you for joining us also here, playwright, screenwriter, and director Kemp Powers. On the eve of release of two major film projects, One Night in Miami, an account of a meeting in 1964 among friends who just happened to be iconic Black Americans, each at a pivotal time in their lives. One Night in Miami gets a limited theatrical release on Christmas Day and will stream from Amazon Prime Video on January 15th. Kemp Powers also wrote and co-directed the animated feature Soul from Pixar, streaming Christmas Day on Disney+. Powers is the first African-American writer-director on any Pixar project, creating Pixar's first black protagonist in Soul. That's middle school band teacher Joe Gardner. Hi, Kemp. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. So, Kemp, uh, starting with you, it sounds like this Christmas you are the one bearing gifts for the world with these films both getting a release on the same day. I hope people see them as gifts. I mean, my, my buddies have been fucking with me. Sorry, can I curse? Uh, but my, my, my buddies have been um, yes. saying this. <laughs> Sorry, I, I start off on a bad foot. My boys have been like, oh, yeah, it's going to be a Merry Kempness. But I'm like, yeah, only if people like the gifts that we're delivering. But um, but yeah, I'm, it's, right. it's a pretty crazy situation to to find yourself in to have, you know, because, of course, I had no control over it. The pandemic, you know, yeah. Seoul was initially supposed to come out in June. It's only by the grace of God that we were able to even finish One Night in Miami because we wrapped principal photography in New Orleans, I think, a week before the pandemic shut us down. And then we had to do those two pickup days with, you know, COVID safe. We were, I think, one of the first productions to get back up and running in Los Angeles. So I really Mm -hmm. feel like someone up there really has been looking out for, for me specifically and us in general with both of these projects that we even got them done. Now, you had Terrence write original music for One Night in Miami. Mm -hmm. In any other year, I would assume that you two have met, but of course, 2020 is most unusual, and so much creative work is being done remotely these days. Have you two met uh, before this? One one phone call, and I barely said a word. I just was sitting there listening to Terrence. (laughs) I think it was the it was the music spotting (laughs) session, Terrence. So, you know, it was one of those like, "There's eight people on the phone. Here's Kemp," and I'm like, "Hey," and. (laughs) And right. that was the, right. the limit of our meeting. But but the man obviously needs no introduction. You know, when I found out that it was even possible to get Terrence to consider um, scoring a film, you know, I was a, a huge fan of of it because I'm, I've been a fan Thank of your work for so many years that, you. you know, I feel like on both these projects, I'm as, I've been blown away musically by everything on One Night in Miami and Soul. I mean, we got John Batiste, who's also a wonderful young um, jazz musician who did all the compositions or soul. And we had Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross do the score. Then over on this side, One Night in Miami, you know, having Terrence and then having, you know, Leslie Odom Jr. singing the original Sam Cooke songs all over again, having a little lone fact, Jeremy Pope covering a Jackie Wilson song kind of amazingly. I, I just feel like I've been in a musical Shangri-La with, with both <laughs> of these films. Well, gentlemen, it's not unusual for me to uh, pick up the newspaper and yes, I still do get a newspaper delivered. I'm about to say. <laughs> and I'll I'll look at I'll look at the headlines and I'll think, 
truth is stranger than fiction. Mm. I have a sense that journalism, that is telling the human story and understanding history, context, and ultimately finding truth, is something that deeply informs both of, of your work creatively. Mm-hmm. Terrence, you have scored many of Spike Lee's films, a range of human stories from the 1992 Malcolm X biopic starring Denzel Washington mm-hmm. to Black Klansman, a film based on true events. And you even stepped in front of the camera for When the Levees Broke, that's Spike Lee's sprawling documentary on the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, personally touring the devastation of your home in New Orleans. Kemp, you worked as a journalist for 17 years before your career writing for stage and screen really took off. Would you both say that the human experience, compared to another form of expression, abstract ideas or romantic notions or pure fiction, the human experience inspires your creativity more than anything else? I would think so. I think, you know, because probably, I'm not sure, like you just said, I just met Kemp, and I'm a big fan of your work, man. I saw a little bit of soul. Just the premise of that, just amazing. (laughs) Thanks. I can't wait to see it. Thanks. I I would think so because, listen, you know, most of us get into the arts because we need some type of healing. You know, we're trying to find a way to try to find, you know, something that seems stable or try to get answers, you know? And in the process, when we're creating this art, man, we're helping to heal other people. And when you look at what's going on in the country right now, what's been happening, it's been happening for a long time, but but now it's just been personified with the digital age, cameras and everything. And then with the fears of losing power, you know, we, we, we put this guy in office who's just been running amok, doing a lot of crazy things. But it's bringing us to this point where we're starting to really understand that we only have each other. And the beautiful thing about what's happened during the pandemic is that entertainment and the arts have really been the lifeblood of keeping people sane. You know, when we were dealing with One Night in Miami, you know, I was just telling some of my friends about the project that I was working on. They couldn't wait for the movie to be released, you know, because they just needed something to take them away from the daily doldrums of what was happening in this country and still is going on, you know? So for, for me, I know music has always been a way of trying to not only document where we are, but try to bring a certain type of lens to it that could help heal other souls. And that's just been the tradition. You could mm-hmm. go back to John Coltrane's Alabama, uh, Billy Holiday's Strange Fruit. That's just been a part of you know, where we come from, those are the shoulders that we're standing on. And I take that very seriously. And I take that obligation very seriously because we only have each other to help lift each other. Kemp, I want to ask you about the origins of One Night in Miami. When did you first begin to explore the plausibility of a meeting between uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, still known at that time as Cassius Marcellus Clay, a newly crowned world heavyweight champion at just 22 years old? along with uh, American musician Sam Cooke and football great Jim Brown and Malcolm X. When did that captivate you as an idea? Well, I think when I discovered that the night really happened, this was back when I was still a journalist. And there was a book that I was reading by the late Mike Marcusi. He was a sports journalist, English-born, American-raised sports journalist, who wrote a really great book on the intersection between professional sports and the civil rights movement called Redemption Song. Mm. And there was one paragraph in the book that just said on February 25th, 1964, after Cassius Clay beat Sonny Liston, no one thought he was going to win, so there was no party planned. So we went back to his friend Malcolm X's room, 
where he spent a night in quiet conversation with Malcolm X, singer Sam Cooke, and football player Jim Brown. And the next morning, he announced to the world that he was in the Nation of Islam. So for me, that moment was, uh, you know, I, I've been saying it for years that it was like I accidentally discovered the, discovered the Black Avengers, you know, when I, when I read that little, that little paragraph. But the reality is everyone already knew about the relationship between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. For me, the entry point into that story that really perked me up was the Sam Cooke of it all. Yes. That was what, like, Sam Cooke was really the vehicle that made me, like, I got to learn more. Like, what was he doing there? Everyone else made sense. If you know anything about Jim Brown and his Black Economic Union and the Ali Summit, you know, you understand how these guys being athletes, you know, and their militants being on their sleeve, you know, why they would be together. Sam Cooke struck me very differently. And I start my research started with Sam Cooke with the intention of initially writing a book about the friendship of these four men, a friendship that was mostly active in the two years between 1963 and early in 1965 when two of them were killed. And once you start digging into Sam Cooke, that really kind of opened my eyes because I realized that I made in my mind Sam Cooke more contemporary of an artist than he was. A lot of it was Sam Cooke's presentation. You notice Sam Cooke had a natural. So that in your mind, you place Sam Cooke in the late, maybe late 1960s. The, Sam Cooke was the 1950s. He just cut that conk out of his hair. You see the influence of a Malcolm X on Sam Cooke in all kinds of elements of his presentation that made him look so different than Jackie Wilson and Little Richard and a lot of his contemporaries. When Sam Cooke, you know, unfortunately died tragically here in L.A., what did they find in his Ferrari outside the hotel? A bottle of whiskey and a copy of Muhammad Speaks. The man was a complex individual. And it was that complexity that really drew me in so that when my journalism career kind of came to an end, I had years worth of research for this book I never got around to writing. And I was now writing creatively. And so that specific night was just perfect fodder to do something creatively where it's like taking everything that I know about these guys before that night and everything I know that happens after them, what conversation do I think they would have on that night? I mean, there's some facts that are indisputable. You can do some research and find out they did just eat vanilla ice cream. You know, there are little, you know, Jim Brown is still alive, though people have asked him and he said he doesn't remember much. Though someone did tell me that he was bringing up going into movies. So I, I think I landed that perfectly just by guessing at, you know, and, and again, it was it's all informed by who they were. So um, again, it started as something I was, thinking of pursuing as nonfiction. But then when my, my nonfiction career ended and I ended up as a playwright, to me, that was just like the perfect theatrical thing to, to stage. And, and again, the key into the story was the Sam Cooke of it all. Terrence, you have been tasked as a composer to write music that helps transport the audience to a different time and place. Mm -hmm. uh, Black Klansman comes to mind with its 70s uh, funk rock vibe, mm -hmm. uh, a mm -hmm. score that earned you an Academy Award nomination, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, was there a musical point of reference for you on One Night in Miami? Well, I mean, for me, there wasn't a specific reference. It was more about the period. And you got to remember me being a jazz musician growing up, listening to Clifford Brown from the 50s, you know, all of the guys in the 60s, all of those guys just seemed to meld into this one era that I thought was a real powerful one. So, you know, in talking to Regina, man, you know, she had this idea of just having like a, a, a single instrument for the score. And I had come up with some other ideas and I played them for her, but she really wanted the single instrument. And when we settled on the piano, it just 
came to mind about all of the great jazz artists that had come before and who laid down this history that we are trying to further now. And I just thought it would be a great idea to have a jazz score based around just simply piano. The interesting thing about it, you know, is when you decide when you decide to choose one instrument like that to be the basis of a score, every single thing about that instrument becomes extremely important. Mm. You know, the sound of it, the way you attack a note, you know, it was so interesting, you know, when we started actually performing it or recording, I'm sorry, with Benny Green, who's a great jazz pianist and a great friend of mine, we literally would get into how he was touching some of the melodies. You know, like Benny, that was beautiful, but it had a little, it had too much anger in it. So can you soften up? Can you play the chords in the left hand with the soft pedal or the opposite? Can you give me a little more energy in that line in the left hand? You know, it became like a really interesting, I don't want to say test, but a, a, a project to work on. And with Regina's guidance, man, it was, it was extremely powerful. Uh, let's talk about the Regina King effect. You know, she's well-known as an accomplished actor. This was her directorial debut. Yes. Tell us about your experience working with her. Oh, I think she's brilliant. She's brilliant. We got a chance to meet each other at the Oscar luncheon last year, or I guess it's two years ago now. And I told them then, I said, I'm a, a huge fan of yours. And I didn't, I knew she, I, I, I found out later that she was doing this film and shooting it in New Orleans Oddly enough, when I had moved to L.A., because I was teaching at UCLA, but normally I would be in New Orleans. And then when I came to New Orleans, they had just wrapped because I left L.A. to come back home because of the pandemic. But my first conversation with her just let me know how brilliant she was because she started talking about these characters and the significance of these characters. And when I first got a chance to just read the script, let alone watch the film, the script itself was just extremely powerful. And I go back to saying this again, in an industry where, you know, sometimes we've been put in a corner to be this one thing. It was, it was really powerful, man. And frankly, very emotional for me reading the script and then seeing the film to see this diverse array of opinions and the willingness not to back down from your position because you held it firmly about what it is that you believed in. That's something that I, like I said, I experienced growing up, but didn't never seen on film. And I frankly love the fact that there's not a lot of music in this film. I know that's kind of weird for a composer to say, you know, we want to write music <laughs> for everything. If you sit down and sneeze, I want to put like a kazoo on it or something. But for me, the words were just important. The words were extremely important. I will say the performances are stellar. And yeah. I, I have to think that Regina and her experience and insight brought out the best in these actors. She really, really did. I mean, she is, if, if nothing else, I hope that this film for Regina proves to people how much of an actor's director she is. The way she, having been on set for a lot of the, a lot of the, sh the shooting of the film, watching her work with, with everyone, not just the four leads, but, but everyone. I mean, it, it, it seemed like this is what she's been doing forever. It, it did not strike me as, as a first-time director at work. I told her exactly the same thing. Exactly. I told her that when I when I got man when I got the first cut, I went, hold on, wait a minute. Who did the, who's the director? This is the first time directing a film. I mean, the pace of the film, the editing of it, just the way the the performances were going in each scene, 
the flow of the film. I went, yep. wow, this, this, it, it was amazing. So here's the backstory on Ducé Cognac. Born in the Chateau de Cognac and crafted to be bold yet remarkably smooth, Ducé is a modern expression of cognac unlike any other. With over 200 years of heritage, drink Ducé straight or enjoy it in a cocktail for the ultimate luxury cognac experience. Visit Ducé.com and discover your new favorite spirits. That's D-U-S-S-E dot so um, I do want to move on because I, I don't know how much time we have with you. And I have a couple more things I want to cover with both of you. I want to get to the movie Soul. But Terrence, first, I want to ask you about Fire Shut Up in My Bones. This is your opera uh, premiering mm-hmm. the next season at the Met in New York. Mm-hmm. Had you been thinking about writing an opera? And w- what was it about Charles Blow's memoir that made you think, you know, this is it? Um, I've been a fan of Charles Blow's writing. Uh, as an op-ed writer for the New York Times. I mean, he's someone who, especially over the past handful of years, has been willing to speak truth to power. Yes. And uh, his, his writing is exceptional. But um, are you friends with Charles Blow? And, and why was it this memoir? No, I wasn't friends with him. But I, I, like you, I was a big fan of his writing. You know, And when you asked me if I was thinking about writing an opera, no, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that started because years ago, there was a guy in St. Louis named Gene Dobbs Bradford who ran this club at the time in St. Louis. And I was there playing a gig, man, and we were just having conversations. And I told him that my father was in the opera, and he remembered that. And then years later, Opera Theater St. Louis was thinking about doing a jazz opera for kids, and they wanted to find a composer. And Gene put my name in, in the hat. And when they started to see what we were doing, then they said, no, let's make this a main stage opera. And that was my first opera champion. And then Paul Cremo from the Met had come to see Champion. And then when we did Fire Shut Up in My Bones, they had come to see it and asked me to produce it at the Met. But the reason why I did uh, Charles's book is because my wife had read the book and she had brought it to my attention. And to think that the brilliant mind that we see now has gone through all of these trials and tribulations and have come through them in such a way that's like a shining testament to his character how could I not do the story about that? You know, Mm -hmm. as a matter of fact, one of the best things that happened was, you know, when we started doing the opera, I wouldn't let him hear, see anything. You know, I know you got a little frustrated, man. I didn't, you know, Mm -hmm. he didn't get anything, no music, nothing. You know, I said, no, I want you to experience it for the first time when you come to the premiere. So (laughs) you get to the premiere, man. And of course, I'm just like nervous as hell. I'm like, why didn't I show this guy something? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, But the beautiful thing about it was, I walked up to him. I said, we good? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, we're good. We're, we're good. He said the best thing for him about seeing the opera was it made him realize he's not that person anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's a very interesting story about a young boy who's struggling with his identity. And all of us at some point, man, because of the social norms, may have gone through that, where we may kind of go against the tide a little bit, you know, because that's not necessarily who we think we are. You know, I know I went through it just trying to be a jazz musician in a household that was all about classical music and spiritually based music. You know what I mean? So when you start talking about being a jazz musician, man, they wanted to throw holy water on me and pray over me. Every day. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know what I mean? So I, I, I get it. And I didn't go through nothing as severe as what he went through, obviously. But I think the story itself is a universal one, mm. you know, about strength. Because the beautiful thing about doing an opera about him is that he's still around. And his mere presence is the success story. We don't need to cover that because we already see that. 
I understand you mentioned that, that your father was an opera singer. And so mm-hmm. I wonder, was this also a way for you to come full circle and reflect your own upbringing? Man, I, Jason, you have no idea. My father always wanted, first of all, they wanted me to sing. And then they put me in a church choir and said, doesn't he play the trumpet? And, you know, once they, <laughs> once they heard me sing, man. That was pretty fun. It actually happened, actually, you know. I remember when that happened. They took me out of the choir and brought me in the back. They said, man, go home and get your horn. Yeah, my father was a baritone and he loved operatic music. So this is something that I kind of, I guess, inadvertently ran from because I wasn't going to be my father. You know, I was going to be my own person and I love jazz. So when Jim Robinson, who's the director, approached me about doing an opera for Opera Theater St. Louis, it just blew my mind. And my father had passed away a number of years ago. And sadly enough, we just lost, man, a great voice, uh, Arthur Woodley, who was one, who was the male lead and uh, champion. And I was, we were going to give, we were going to find another role for him in, in uh, Fire at the Met. Uh, he just passed away a couple of days ago. But he knew the story of, of my father and my relationship. We used to argue about music all the time. And I said, dude, this is so freaky that I'm working with opera singers because when I hear you guys singing in full voice, I'm hearing my dad. You know, I'm going back and hearing. My dad used to have be part of a group called the Osceola Five, which was run by this guy named Osceola Blanchett, T-H-E-T. And all of these black men used to get together on Wednesday nights and sing opera. I thought they were the weirdest dudes on the planet because black men, I didn't see black men singing opera, right? Mm-hmm. So at the night of the premiere, man, when I came up from my curtain call, Arthur, he grabbed me, you know, uh, right after I had taken my bow and he grabbed me and he, he whispered in my ear, he said, you know, your, your father would be really proud of you right now. And that was a very, very interesting moment, very emotional moment for me, because it does feel like I had come full circle, you know, and it's one of those things, you know, where you sit down and you go, you know, youth is wasted on the young, because sometimes you you, you sit there and think to yourself, man, I was so headstrong, strong back then. If I would have just maybe opened my eyes just a little bit, you know, who knows how f- much further down the road I would be right now if I listened to my father back then. Okay, I want to talk about soul. Kemp, I loved this film. First of all, I'm amazed at the sophistication of animation these days. I don't even think Woo! this is a movie for, for kids. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the, the, the writing, the storytelling, this is a universal message for all ages, and it was an absolute surprise and delight to me. But tell us, tell us the story uh, of soul. So it's the story of... Uh, um... This, this, the main character, this guy, Joe Gardner, he is a middle school band teacher in Queens, New York. But what Joe has longed to do his entire life is, is be a professional jazz pianist. Um, and like many people who want to pursue careers on the arts, he's been pursuing this on nights and weekends most of his adult life, and it just hasn't been picking up. So on the day that he gets, finds out that he's finally going to have some job security, he also has an opportunity to audition for the Dorothea Williams Quartet. That's our fictional band that is like probably one of the most, uh, I guess the equivalent, it would be like the Branford Marcellus Quartet. You know what I mean? Like it would be, it would be that band. that's like, you know, the, the, the coolest, you know, most well-known playing at the, you know, the village Vanguard band in, 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 in America. And he, he, he inexplicably lands the gig. And a moment later, he basically takes a misstep, falls down a manhole cover and, and dies. But <laughs> refusing to go into the great beyond, the afterlife, because he feels like he's been ripped off, he basically goes against the grain, goes in the opposite direction of the white light, 
and stumbles off of the walkway and finds himself in this place called the Great Before. It's actually where souls are created, where new souls go before they're actually born and they're given their personalities. He um, pretends, he basically cons his way into the Great Before, pretending to be a mentor, where he is paired up with the one new soul who does not want to be born at all, voiced by uh, Tina Fey, soul number 22. And they concoct a plan to get Joe back to his body. Basically, it involves him taking her Earth Pass and using it to get back to his body so that he can make this gig and live out his, his dream of being a professional jazz musician. Now, Kemp, I trust you haven't had any brushes with death or visited the afterlife, but how personal is this story in reflecting your own journey as a writer and a playwright and now a Hollywood screenwriter? It's very personal. And yes, I have had brushes with death. I have one in particular mm-hmm. that got my Hollywood career started. It was actually the, the opening night of One Night in Miami at Baltimore Center Stage. That was the first profession, like the first union regional production of the play, second production in 2015. I was not at opening night because I was in the hospital fighting for my life up the block. Mm. I had had an allergic reaction to a flu medication and spent eight days. I almost died. And that was actually when I came, when I finally made it out of the hospital, I remember saying to myself, like, if I get out of this hospital, like, that's it. Um, 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 t- it's all leap of faith from here on, on out. Mm. No, you know, like my, my journalism career, while it was almost gone, I was still doing contract work as a, as an editor. I got out of the hospital told everyone to get lost and said, I am now a playwright screenwriter full time (laughs) or I'm going to die trying because I almost (laughs) just died. So yes, it's very personal. But I think that even without the near death experience, it was personal because I understand what it's like to pursue something you love on nights and weekends and to Mm. not have it pick up for you until years after everyone else has told you to give up. Uh, Again, (laughs) when I wrote the first production of my play, I was older than all the men were in that room. I got my first Hollywood um, screenwriting job in a TV show in in my 40s. And this year, Soul and One Night in Miami are my first feature films. And I'm I'm 47. So, you know, people would have tell people have been telling me to give up um, and don't quit your day job. And, and you know, at what point are you, you know, you, you're you're never going to be able to retire. Yeah, you, you, you're you know, it, I, I've been told all the things. And, yeah. and it's often coming from a loving place, which is why I understand Joe. Because his mother, Libba, that conversation he has with his mother, that's a conversation I had to have with my own mom. You know, you're so smart. We set you up for success. Why are you choosing to fail? Because that's what a pursuit pursuing an arts career can feel like to a parent or parents who've poured all their hopes and dreams into you. But when you have that kind of passion for what you do, which is a passion that I've had for for writing, it's a passion that obviously Terrence has had for music. it, It seems crazy to everyone around you. How many times did you hear you needed something to fall back on? Man, I, I heard it after I started working on Soul. You know, like, it was just like... <laughs> man, like <laughs> That's funny. It's, it's That's never going to stop. Because, right. And I get it, because growing up, what right. we do for a living weren't real jobs. There's an idea in Soul that I want to unpack quickly. And thank you for your generosity with your time today. This has been an excellent conversation. So as you mentioned, Joe Gardner, our hero, is stuck in this place called The Great Before. And as he tries to make sense of this place, this great distribution center, and how to get back to his body, he comes across the zone. This is the space between the physical and spiritual worlds. Mm -hmm. And in the zone, he meets a group of swashbuckling astral travelers called the Mystics (laughs) Without Borders. They show him 
these floating apparitions of people who are in the zone. And we can all identify with that. Athletes and actors and musicians, everybody knows that place. And when you catch a flow and you're feeling it and you're not thinking, you're just doing. So he also points out in this space, lost souls Mm -hmm. who are like monster-like beasts, right? And lost souls are not that different from the floating apparitions in the zone. The zone is enjoyable, but when that joy becomes an obsession, one becomes disconnected from life. Yes. So, and it's the mystics who are out of borders. It's their mission to help the lost souls let go of their anxieties and obsessions. Kemp, if you could help understand this distinction, and I'm just curious what inspired this idea in the film. And it's one of several things in the film that you you really have to pay close attention. Like if you if you just watch this movie in one sitting, you know, you you've got to go back. You've you have to go back and really see it again once or twice more just to really understand some of these ideas that you're imparting. Right. Well, I mean, the idea of the lost soul, we all, I mean, what I love about the concept is, you know. I've been guilty of it. Sometimes our passion, the things that we love, lift us up, but they can also be something we hide behind that drag us down, you know, that allow us to disconnect from our loved ones, that allow us to disconnect from life itself. And the idea of the zone was this place where everything living on earth is manifested psychically in this, in this, in the zone, in the, in the astral plane. And I, you know, what I love about the idea of being lost is that you can, at some point in our lives, all of us might be lost for a while. So that was the whole point of it. It's not just that, like, you know, being in the zone is transcendent. You can also be a lost soul, but a, being a lost soul doesn't mean you're doomed. You can be lost and you can then be found again and come back out of it. Um, and, and really, the difference is a minimal difference. It's a very subtle, it's a very, you know, nuanced mm-hmm. difference. I remember there was a point in the development of the film where we almost cut the entire zone out of the movie, where it was, it almost like didn't go to the zone. Um, and it was because of questions about the, um, the complexity of that concept. Mainly is that concept so complex that children won't understand it. And I, I got to like give a lot of credit. We did a, we did a screening for young children four to about 12 years old and they got it. Like those kids actually saved the zone in the film because, you know, in, in the case, once we did a Q&A afterwards, a lot of the parents said, I love the movie, but I think that concept is way too complex for my child. At which point the child interrupted them and explained to the parent in detail the entire <laughs> wow. concept. That's so That's it's awesome. a very nuanced thing, but I think that it's easy to understand. It's, it's just a subtle difference. It's that our, the thing we love can also be the thing when, when we talk about things we love, we often describe it as an escape, you know, and that's the zone. But sometimes the things that we use as an escape, we all, it becomes a tool for avoidance. You know what I mean? And that's the, that's the difference. It's like, oh, well now, you know, I'm working, I'm too busy working. You know what? I'm working all, you know what? I'm not even going to come home from the office. Now you're lost. Mm. Like it, it's uh, that's the, that's the nuance of it all. Terrence, uh, over to you on this idea of um experiencing the zone in music and for the first time i'm curious if you had a sense of it to improvise seems like it's being hardwired to the zone and it actually in this film soul jazz is described as black improvisational music mm-hmm. so talk about the zone of going too far and how important is the live space for everything else you do 
It's, well, first of all, live space is extremely important because it's it it deals with the vibration of now, you know. And when you talk about the zone, one of the things that I I always think about is that many of us experience that early in our lives just by going to church every Sunday. You know, mm-hmm. there are certain things that happen in those experiences that go well beyond anything that you could explain verbally. Uh, I I did a whole album about it. The album is entitled Flow. We call it Flow. You know, mm-hmm. and I don't, but it's the same thing yeah. when you're going in with the stream. And one of the things that we've we we discovered just as young artists is that this myth of struggle is just that. It's a myth. There doesn't always have to be not to say that struggle is good or bad, but it's just to say that sometimes when you're in the floor or in the zone, you have to allow set your ego aside and just go with what is. A great teacher told me one time, he said, there's a difference, there's a struggle between who we are and who we want to be. And dealing with that struggle, I had to learn how to go with the flow and be in the zone. Understanding that, man, when you're in that zone, that to me, that's truly where life really exists in its in the, the, the fullest experience of, of what that can be. Because as a performer, you know, sometimes I'm experiencing it just like the person sitting out in the audience. That's why sometimes when you watch people who improvise after a great performance, they can't tell you what they played. It was that it was in that moment. And you have to throw away all of your uh, the mental control, so to speak. You're not to say that that doesn't exist because Art Blakey used to tell us all the time, you know, being an artist is a struggle between your brain and your heart going back and forth. But the thing about it for me, it's a drug. You know, it's the reason why, even though I have this film career, even though I'm an educator and I teach, I still perform live, you know, because performing live, man, there's, there's, there's nothing to, that, that, you can, that can beat that. It's one of the reasons why I love sports, you know, mm-hmm. boxing, you know, basketball, football. When you watch, you know, especially when you watch basketball, you watch five guys on the court and they all act like one thing. That's a similar type of vibration you can experience when you're playing with a band. And there is nothing, nothing like that. There are moments that I've played live where the audience was just as, as much as a, uh, a performer as I was a participant listening to them because it's a very communal kind of thing. And I also believe, and this is where I go back to what I was saying earlier, I also believe it's a very uplifting thing. So that's why it's very important to me because I think in those moments, we start to heal souls. Just think about soul. What what is soul going to do for so many people who watch this? So many young kids who are going to experience this film and and take something from it, and that's going to be imprinted on their souls for the rest of their lives. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the, that's why these things are extremely important to me. That's why it's important not to not to sugarcoat it or to try to just create something based off of a demographic. You know, I don't yeah. necess- I don't really believe in that. I really believe in like just dealing with what what we know to be real. You know, right. there's real struggle out here. There's real heartbreak out here. And there's a lot of kids out here who are scared about certain things, you know. And if we can create a project or a piece of art or a piece of music that can help them deal with it, then that's what we should do. There is no doubt that we are at a very interesting moment for the both of you as creators at the highest level of popular culture and in the context of America in 2020, which is a whole other podcast episode. But I want to recognize these projects that we've talked about today and that you have realized uh, over time and through a lot of 
hard work, as reflections of our own challenges and the complexities of the human spirit that remind us of the strength and intelligence and compassion and everything that we're capable of as individuals and together. James Baldwin wrote, I am what time, circumstance, history have made me, certainly, but I am also much more than that. Mm -hmm. So are we all. Yes. Kemp Powers and Terrence Blanchard, I want to thank you both for joining me on The Backstory today. Thank you for having me, and thank you for for introducing me to this guy that I work with and never got a chance to meet. (laughs) It's been such an honor to finally get a chance to touch and chop it up with you in person, man. This is great. Yeah, Thank thank you, gentlemen. Thank Thank you, guys. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of The Backstory. For more on One Night in Miami, check out the Soho House Award Season Special Series, kicking off with and featuring an interview with actor Kingsley Ben-Adir at SohoHouse.com. Feel free to let me know what you think of this podcast. I'm on Twitter at Jason underscore Bentley. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. The Backstory is a 101 Podcast Studios production brought to you by Soho House with the support of Duce Cognac. I'm Jason Bentley, and I'll see you next time on The Backstory.